You're listening to the AdCast with your host, Eric Elliott. I got the man himself on the line today, Mr. Jonathan Yaffe. Um, today he's talking to us. He's inside Toronto today. So he's a traveling man. And uh, Jonathan, uh, I'm super proud of uh, your accomplishments, man. And you are one of those people, man. You didn't just wake up and start doing this shit in one day, man. You've been doing this. You've been grinding for a while. Um, and I- I'm going to brag on you um, <laughs> just a little bit. You know, uh, this guy, he's an entrepreneur. He's an educator. You also see him on some stage doing some speeches every now and, and again. But most importantly, he's a sushi addict. <laughs> you didn't think I knew that, huh, Jonathan? I did not. I did not. <laughs> might even have it. But, uh... Uh, he's also uh, the CEO of AnyRoad, and AnyRoad is a leading experience relationship management platform that enables global brands to properly measure, scale, and implement exper- experimental marketing campaigns. AnyRoad helps companies create brand loyalty, change consumer behavior, and better understand their brand associations by providing them with data intelligence sourced from experience-based marketing holy shit that is that that is strong dude because that that's more important uh now more than ever man so uh, jonathan there's there's going to be some folks who are going to say like who's jonathan man jonathan let's tell these folks exactly who you are and what you do all right thanks for having me it's 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 great to be here with you um yeah thank you man i uh yeah i i i I love sushi i eat a lot of sushi (laughs) Um, and I'm a firm believer in, we were just talking about this, but I'm a firm believer in, uh, the power of real life engagement Mm. and, uh, both in terms of people and work and, uh, and creativity, but also in terms of brand, right. Um, you know, especially coming after, you know, this pandemic, we've been stuck on our sofas for two years. Um, and what we really see is this power of human connection. Uh, People are not getting out of their houses for the first time in two years, vaccinated and wanting to just go buy a bunch of stuff. People want to have immersive experiences. People are going to concerts. People are traveling. People are, you know, going to uh, parties and people are really craving this human connection. Um, And what we found is that, yeah, you know, Zoom and Hopin and all these different, you know, online platforms substituted for that out of necessity, but really it didn't replace, um, from, a from a human perspective, what we all crave. Yeah. We need that interaction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what we found, um, actually where I started my career, but what we found is that the most successful brands in the world understand this and Mm -hmm. are investing heavily in, in in-person experiences as a primary form of engagement, not on Instagram ads, not on Facebook ads, not on TikToks. Of course, these things are still happening, uh, but that the the strongest form of engagement is through in-person immersive experiences. Damn. What, what actually, I also want to give you congratulations to you and your company too. Um, I I said, I was going to mention that too. Uh, on a Series B funding of forty-seven uh, million, and, and people they hear that and they think it's all gravy. But you know, truthfully, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. Uh, so kudos to you and your team. Um, you know, but you know, one of the brands that you work with, and we're, we're going to dive in a lot of uh, into a lot of what you do with Any Road. But one of the brands that you work with was uh, Red Bull. I mean, and hell, you were working with Red Bull before people knew exactly that Red Bull gave them wings, you know? So, I mean, tell me about that because you started that, I mean, straight out of college. I mean, right. how, how does that go? I want to know, like, how did you start getting to where you are? What what the hell got you up every day and said, I got to keep pushing? Or when was it ne- never enough that you got to keep going? And how do you stay motivated, you know? Yeah, so uh, I actually started at Red Bull during college. I was working two jobs. Uh, one in a uh, genetics lab because uh, mm-hmm. I have a science background. I'm a big science guy, uh, but also uh, started working at Red Bull. And this was the m- best job for a student. I got to drive around the Red Bull car, you know, big can on top, yeah. basically unlimited product. We could do whatever we wanted in Northern California as long a lot as- of energy, <laughs> a lot of energy. Yeah, as long- I used to drink a lot of Red Bull. We're not going to go. We're not going to take the conversation in that direction. Uh, but we could basically do whatever we wanted in California as long as we found Pinos, which are people in need of energy. Hmm. 
can't, can't make this up. And, uh, and then I, and then, and, and as a part of that, we started organizing these incredible experiences, right? Things like Flugtag, which means flying day, where people actually build these, these planes, planes, and, uh, and basically fly them slash push them off like a pier into the water. Mm. it's this it's hilarious and none of them actually fly they're made of like sofas and like you know they're wearing costumes and it's it's a lot of theatrics and there are uh there are jets flying overhead with people jumping out of airplanes and people going down mountains on tricycles djs playing people are dancing everyone's having an amazing time Fifty thousand people came from all over these incredible experiences and like people really love it right yeah people are coming out of love and we spent over a billion dollars a year on experiences like that when I was at Red Bull. Get out of here. A billion dollars a year. So look, clearly it worked, right? Red Bull has by far number one market share globally. Yep. But what drove me absolutely crazy, remember I'm a science guy, we had no data. We had no idea what, whether what we were doing was working. And we, we had no idea who was coming to these experiences, how it was actually changing people's purchase behavior, how it was changing mm. people's perception of the Red Bull brand. We knew nothing. Wow. We had what, what I call vanity metrics, right? Like 50,000 people came, we gave out 80,000 Red Bulls, and we spent $14 million on this experience. Is that good? Is that bad? Like, who, who the fuck drank these, you know, 80,000 Red Bulls? Was it evenly distributed or was it like one yeah. who just like went, went, you know, went crazy and, and drank all the Red Bulls? So we didn't have any data there. So turn, this is really what I've dedicated my life to. And now it's 20 years later. And what we're seeing, especially coming out of COVID, I was, as I was just mentioning, the world has completely shifted from a things mm-hmm. economy to an experience economy. Mm-hmm. And we see this in terms of millennials who are spending way more money on experiences than things, right? 72% of millennials prefer to spend money on experiences than buying things, right? This is a, a, a generational change. We see retail brands that are yeah. literally shutting down every single day, right? Look at the news and it's like this retail brand bankruptcy, this retail brand out of business, right? Why would I ever walk into a store if I can buy anything I want on my phone, right? potentially same day delivery don't have to wait in line and deal with annoying people better customer service like why would i ever walk into a store um but what we're seeing is this global transformation from a things economy to an experience economy and the biggest most successful brands in the world understand this and are doubling down on actually scaling experiential engagement as the primary way that they're interacting with their customers yeah Damn, you know, Jonathan, I remember, um, you know, in my old radio days, I remember we would get like, uh, this is when we had to wait on the fax machine to give us like orders and we run the radio, radio ads. Absolutely. Um, and, and I remember like getting an, an ad, you know, like getting a buy from like Red Bull, you know, for, um, at the time we, I had no damn idea, you know, what it did. And I didn't think about experience. We were just selling spots and dots at the time is all it was, but, I do remember like Red Bull just like just taking over everything. And and I think you're exactly right was they never sat there and talked about taste. What they just did was it was all experiences. So it was the experiences that built that brand. That's right. Really what it was, dude. That's right. You know, and the best brands don't need to talk about product. Right. Red Bull never tells you, hey, this is a functional energy drink beverage. It tastes like stale candy or something. Right. Like they don't need to say that. They just say, look, it gives you wings. Right. 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 And you associate and we we put a a billion dollars a year into these incredible experiences that that, you know, made people think about adventure, risk taking, extreme sports, all of these things. And Mm -hmm. the second you are, you know racing your car down the down the freeway to you know get to your friend's house and you're like a little bit tired and you pull over you're like i need wings now and right you know that that alone uh turns into a lot of brand perception um so absolutely you know apple doesn't talk about how many you know the 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 inner workings of the iphone they just say look this is a phone that does everything basically you know it's 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 funny you say that you know when you think about 
I guess Red Bull is kind of a perfect one to talk about like how a brand experience can just change everything and how experiences and everything as well, especially millennials could sell some millennials will trade in money just for better experience in their job, you know, absolutely. Uh, you know, so, I mean, you, so now you worked, you worked with Red Bull. I mean, you had this, you know, the scientific background and there was no data and, 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 and how did you forge on from there to say, you know, I, I'm going to create this, I can scale this, or I can, uh, I can create something that's going to be, that can be quantifiable for people where they can see the numbers. Right. Yeah. How, how did you, how did you get there? Yeah. So the, the big, the big takeaway was that the frustration that I had at Red Bull uh, helping to, you know, helping to manage a billion dollar budget and having no real visibility into the, the ROI, mm-hmm. uh, turns out that same thing was on the minds of a lot of different brands. Oh. And, uh, and it is actually accelerating, right? So more and more brands are investing heavily in this. Your brand wow. like Lululemon that spend $300 million a year on free yoga classes. Why? Same, same, wow. same thing as Red Bull, right? They're not trying to sell you an additional pair of yoga pants. They're saying, we want to be the place where you do all your yoga and we'll do it. And you can take your yoga inside a Lululemon store for free in almost any city in the world. Right. And they want to bring together the yoga community, knowing that by doing that, they build brand love and ultimately they sell more pants, but they're playing the long game right? The same way we did at Red Bull, right? You have brands like Michael's art stores that do a million art classes per year mm-hmm. all over North America. You have, you have brands like Nike that are actually turning their, some of their stores into like basketball courts because they don't care if you walk in and buy a pair of Jordans, right? A lot of people buy, buy shoes on their phone now, right? They want you yeah. to walk in try on a pair of Jordans, play basketball against a Nike employee in the store, have this great experience, Mm-hmm. Like, wow, I just got to play ball inside of a Nike store wearing a new pair of Jordans. This was great. And then I'll walk out and I'll buy those same pair of Jordans on my phone later that day. Right. So wow. again, we're turning, we're going away from this idea of revenue per square foot, which is a very antiquated way to look at retail footprints and yeah. toward a way where if all commerce is moving to the phone, like in China, which is probably 15 years ahead of us from it commerce perspective, then retail space is focused on consumer engagement and ultimately on experiences. Um, Damn. Uh, That's nuts, man. You know, like, so, so where does that leave some of the retailers today? Or you would make the make, it would make you think that some of the box stores or the retailers would say, we need to focus on experiences, guys, you know? I mean, so where are they in their thinking? Are they behind yeah. now, are some of them? Uh, within 10 years, my belief is that every single retailer will go out of business or become an experience wow. or become an experiential brand. Um, and then, I mean, you, again, I, I look at China because they're, again, about 15 years ahead of us. Uh, mm-hmm. People buy everything on their phone, right? Yeah. You can literally go buy one watermelon on you open your open your phone, buy one watermelon, and they'll deliver it to you in like an hour. Like a water, you're just like, I want a watermelon. Somebody will mm-hmm. give you a watermelon. So all commerce happens on the phone. But what you have is, and again, people get shocked when they hear this. Uh, Alibaba, which is a you know a, a massive massive company uh, that mm-hmm. really powers a lot of um, uh, a lot of commerce in in China and JD.com also are actually building physical shopping malls and physical stores in China. And people are like, wait, that's crazy, right? Yeah. Like yeah. What, these are digital first companies, like powering all e-commerce, like ridiculously, you know. It's like Amazon having a store. Well, Amazon is op- opening stores, right? Damn. So um, so that's the whole thing. And this is what this is what brands are realizing is that even though purchases have moved to the phone and are continuing to do so uh those real life experiences cannot be substituted by something digital Mm -hmm. right so alibaba and jd their whole perspective here is go to those stores go to those malls experience these products right and that way you will have a higher chance of purchasing it later on 
And we see that wow. we see that in the United States um, from a lot of digital first brands that are now moving. We, we think that of this as backwards, but moving from digital first to brick and mortar, right? So you have Warby Parker, the glasses brand. You have mm-hmm. Away, Away Suitcases. You have uh, Allbirds Shoes, right? These three brands started as only digital first, direct to consumer. You couldn't buy them in malls. You could only right. buy them online, only through the website. They've right. only started investing heavily in brick and mortar, in building out physical footprints because they, re- you know, Warby Parker realizes like if you go in and try on a pair of glasses, you'll be more likely to buy them later on. Mm-hmm. Um, same with Allbirds, same with the way, same with, you know, these, these brands in China. So I do believe, you know, as time goes to infinity, all retailers will be going out of business unless they're turning into experiential brands. Wow. You, you know, there's um so let's just say like, for example, like the whole GameStop, run mm-hmm. uh is 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 that considered kind of the experience or is that what kind of keeps people holding on to them because truthfully you can go anywhere and buy what's inside of a GameStop, but they're still around is it just because of the experience you go in there play the games and is that it i guess so I, i'm not gonna, I'm not gonna explain <laughs> the, the GameStop saga uh you know but yeah we'll stay away from the whole stock issue but yeah, like, yeah. like you, you you know what i mean like that is kind of like an, an experience and it's you know it's a it's an easy one to kind of pull off as an example where where it's like it's an experience they want you to go in there and play games that's right what they want you to do that's, you know that's right and hmm. and what we're seeing is that the most successful retailers are at least experimenting with this right um you know you look at the the world of beauty right um you know sephora you, you can and, and these days you can buy any makeup online right mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but sephora is investing heavily in things like makeovers uh makeup tutorials makeup classes uh you know they want to educate they want to bring people into this ecosystem and because of that you're seeing the individual um beauty brands like Estee Lauder and all their yeah. brands and um, and and a lot of them are falling flat and L'Oreal and stuff like that, right? Uh, people are, you know, ch- trying to do metaverse and stuff like that. But what a lot of these brands are not doing well is actually engaging consumers experientially. Uh, they're just trying to throw out their products into the world and hope that they stick. But I agree. People, I agree with you. people don't have a lot of loyalty to products these days. Um, it- yeah. Could could that be why, uh, you know, I guess some of those brands, like some of the ones that may have, you know, not focused on experience, they're just saying, hey, let's just get an influencer, you know? That's right. That's right. So the, when I see when I see brands investing heavily in like Instagram influencers, it basically is a is a sign to me of desperation. Right. Um, you know, f- frankly, People, people do look to influencers, right, for maybe what to buy. And yep. you might buy, you know, an extra pair of, you know, an, an extra tube of lipstick um, because, you know, Kylie Jenner uses it or something like that. But <laughs> right. It's not going to change your your lifetime value. It's not really mm-hmm. going to change your, your long-term behavior. Now, I, I want to talk about the product. You know, people have heard of the word CRM for customer relationship management, but then now there's ERM. So, I mean, explain to, to me exactly what that is. And then I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about uh, any road. Yeah. So the whole concept of experience relationship management is looking at these uh, experiential initiatives, not as just a fun thing to do, but as a way to actually build uh, deeper relationships with consumers and mm-hmm. pull in a lot of first-party data. So you have brands like Budweiser that do 1.6 million brewery experiences per year. You have a million people a year who go to the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. You have uh, Ben & Jerry's does, you know, uh, they, they have a ice cream factory uh, mm-hmm. that you can go visit in Vermont which is an incredible experience, right? The problem is that these brands, because they're CPG, don't actually know who's consuming their products. Got it. So they scale these experiential programs to actually go deeper and build one-on-one relationships with these brands. Or, sorry, with their consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's difficult to do, right? So what we realize is that this is both a data problem, uh, an, an operational problem, uh, a logistics problem and also a legal problem, 
right? Because wow. you need consumer opt-ins. And so we basically looked at these four areas and built what we think is really the sales force for the experience economy. That's amazing because I think that's truthfully you find out a lot of people, uh, a lot of brands. Some of them don't know who their customer is. You'd be surprised. They they, they do not know who their customer is. Uh, they couldn't write out their ideal customer. That's if right. Even pen and paper. That's, that's true. Right. Yeah, and and what the way I think about it is, um, I've been shaving since I was about thirteen, um, and I've exclusively my entire life used Gillette razors. Uh, Gillette's owned by Procter and Gamble, uh, mm -hmm. one of our customers. Uh, and again, since I was 13, exclusively with Gillette razors, I'm a huge Gillette fan. I've spent a lot of money on Gillette razors. Gillette right. has no idea who I am. Because to them, they think you're not the core guy. Oh, no, they think I'm the core guy, but I don't buy my razors from Gillette. I buy them from Amazon or CVS or, you know, or wow. somewhere else. And so... Gillette has no direct relationship with me. And because of that, they don't really have a good way to communicate with me. And they don't know how often I buy razors and they don't know whether I have a huge beard or I'm clean shaven. They don't know what, which type of razors I prefer. They don't know yeah. my email address. They don't know my age. They don't know where I live. I'm just some anonymous consumer who buys their razors through third parties. And this is a huge detriment to that. Right. Oh my gosh. Um, so they spent the last 20 years building better razors, but not actually understanding more about their, their customers. And meanwhile, you have brands like Dollar Shave Club, right? Like Harry's that, that came in and really changed the game by building direct to consumer models, which is not only a better economic model, but they know exactly who all of their customers are. They have oh my gosh. direct relationships with them. They know their email addresses. They can call them if they want. They know how often they, they reorder razors. They know where they live. They can approximate socioeconomic level by zip code. Like they can, they know a lot about these people. And this has been to the detriment of, you know, any brand, but uh, that, that focuses just on products without actually building those relationships. No, I, I can see it, man. Because if you think about it, if if they don't know exactly who their customer is, then they are forced to just brand and add and brand and ads and brand and ads to be able to push product because they don't know that you are their customer. That's right. But guess wow. what? Procter & Gamble realized this, thank goodness, and now they're investing heavily in experiential. Right. Wow. They're building out experiences. They did a, something huge at the Super Bowl. They're, you know, they're investing in connecting with with uh, both men and women who shave. Mm -hmm. um, and they're really going deep on on experiences as a way to collect first party data and build these one on one relationships with their consumers. You, you know, it's it's I was watching a, what, what, an old episode of Mad Men. I didn't uh, do the whole thing. But back then, everything was smoke and mirrors, man. Right. Everything was so smoke and mirrors, but nowadays people real brands want data. They, is, they they want data and results, man. <laughs> absolutely. And this is this is how I view the entire it's funny I use that analogy sometimes. Uh the entire um evolution of marketing is it used to be mad men. It used to be people sitting around like yeah. smoking and being like, Yeah, this is this would be a very creative ad. This would be really cool. And it's just like great, there is a lot of creativity in marketing, but now if you are going to be a good marketer, you need to be a data scientist. You need to understand data. You need to understand ROI. You need to understand channels. You need to understand experiential first party data. Like you need to know all of this. And, yes. um, and you still see the marketing and ad world full of people who think that they live in the Mad Men world that are just kind of throwing stuff out into the ether being like, it would be great to do something with the Kardashians. <laughs> right. But, yeah. you know, I, I think it's going through a generational cycle, though. I think it's going through a generational cycle because, you know, some of we talked about some of the younger folks coming up now where they're very experienced and very data heavy and they make data decisions, whereas a lot of the decisions before could have been um, emotionally driven. That's right. You know, emotionally driven to say, hey, we're going to do this product or we're going to launch it this way because of this. And they truthfully had no idea why or what they were doing or Absolutely. any good reason behind it. Absolutely. And I, I actually want to 
take that a step further to say, the, I think the emotional aspect is actually very important. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think that's disconnected from data. In fact, we can use things like natural language processing to understand and quantify emotional impact. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, I mean, you come to a Red Bull event or you come to, uh, you know, a, a Nike basketball experience and that can have, that can still have that emotional impact, but rather than just saying that was great. Yeah. How about we look at this across, you know, longitudinally across a million people to understand a, the change in brand perception that this, that these experiences caused B put that emotional impact into words and then start to compare and say, look, we spent a, you know, a hundred million dollars on these experiences and a hundred million dollars on these experiences, which one had a better emotional impact. Right. Right. Pepsi can sponsor a Beyonce concert and a Jay-Z concert. One of these has higher ROI. Mm -hmm. Right. And we can actually use data to actually quantify that. Yeah, so, there's there an old saying, oh, go ahead, keep going, keep going. You're on, you're on the fire. The, the, the emotional impact is su still super important. And in fact, I think it's more important than ever because influencer marketing does not create the kind of emotional impact that these brands desire. The problem mm. is that it's, and it's not data or emotion. It's a matter of like the world of people who understand both is very small still. You have the, you know, the, the crazy data scientists who are looking at everything uh, from a, you know, a scientific perspective. And you have the madmen folks who are, you know, looking at everything from like, a, oh, wow, this is emotionally really rich. But like wow. the, the future is really about combining these. Right. And what one thing that we're trying to do is build a community of um, of next generation marketing leaders who really understand that the emotional impact needs the data and vice versa. Damn, that, that's strong, dude. Um, it, it reminds me of an old saying that I heard someone say, he said, he said, if you're going to make a gut decision, feed your gut. And, and feeding your gut is not just, you know, feeding it with just, Oh, how you feel, but it is that data. It is that data that you're talking about that data and those experiences. I mean, that makes, that makes a, a lot of sense there, man. Gosh. So, so tell me how, I mean, how many different brands or, or some of the brands, if you're able to name them that any word does business with, or you partner with I mean, about, so we, we, uh, we work with about 200 brands, uh, mm -hmm. all over the world, mostly, uh, North America and Canada, but, uh, we're expanding, uh, more internationally, um, mostly in CPG retail and auto. Wow. So in the retail right now, cause I know, I think in, sometime in July, you had done uh, a talk on, retail you're on stage and you had talked about how how retail companies can build through scale through platform yeah let's, let's talk about that yeah so I, I mean bringing this back a lot of retailers have a huge footprint uh from from a number of stores perspective and as commerce moves more online uh, a lot of folks are either closing stores or trying to figure out what they're doing mm-hmm um, and we're seeing a lot of really inspiring use cases. Uh, Dick's Sporting Goods is turning a lot of their stores into these house of sports locations with rock climbing walls, batting cages, uh, sports classes for kids, um, along, along the same lines of, you know, of Nike that are saying, look, we don't care whether you walk out with an item today. We want to be the place where you participate in your sports and your wow. athletics. You see brands like, Michaels and Joanne that are investing heavily in art classes. You see brands like North Face that do climbing experiences uh, and all kinds of outdoor experiences. REI believes that in 10 years, they'll be making more money selling experiences than things. Uh, Sir Le Tab sells spatulas, but you can also go on a date there and learn how to saute and, you know, they're wow. a cooking class, right? But they believe that you go and take a cooking class, there's an increased chance that you'll walk out with a new cast iron pan. Um, oh, man. What, what we're seeing is that is really the, re A, the reinvention of physical space, right? And B, brands realizing that these experiences are not just a nice to have. They are by far the uh, most successful um, w uh the most successful and effective way to actually increase lifetime value of their, of their customers and build that loyalty. 
I mean, are, are there any brands that you see like, man, they're, they're doing it right. Some that you don't work with, you say like, gosh, you're doing a great job. Or you look at some others, you can say like, ah, oh, they really need some help or they should be doing this. Do you, do you, do you look at them like that? Like daily on a daily basis to say, damn, oh, yeah. they really need to do this. Oh yeah. I mean, look, I, Lululemon's a great experience. Not, not one of our customers. Uh, I've, a, you know, Calvin, the CEO, came out um, about two years ago and said, we are no longer an apparel company. We are now an experience company. Wow. Again, they're, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on these experiential programs. They even built uh, these stores. I wouldn't call them stores. Th these <laughs> experiential centers in Chicago that don't even have checkout kiosks, right? Because it's not about... Wow selling moving product it's about coming to actually be a part of this community and take your yoga classes and do pilates and meditate with your friends and again it's i mean it's incredible what they're doing and they're doing this all over the world but they don't know what works they don't know if they, they intuitively believe this works hmm. they don't have any data around this um and so i look at them and i say what that's a they're leaving a lot on the table yeah um, you know, I, I look at a lot of car brands, um, a lot of car brands, uh, you know, car sales are going down all over the world. Yeah. Oh yeah. But, uh, a lot of these brands have, uh, have are heavily into experiential, right? You can go drive a, uh, Porsche around a racetrack. You can go test drive a BMW. BMW actually built their own theme park in Munich called BMW world. And, and one here in South Carolina too. You, they have a, a course. When I got mine, they gave you an invite to come up there and drive. There you go. There yeah. you go. The question is, if you go and do that, how does that actually impact the chance that you're going to purchase a BMW in the next five years? Greatly. Right? It, of course. Yeah. Uh, but they don't currently have a way to actually understand that, pull in that data, and connect that into the purchase data. Hmm. And this is the this is the largest low hanging fruit for most brands, yeah. Which especially I think with the uh, the automotive, the retail automotive, because uh, there's so much information that goes back and forth between the two. Even when even when you're in the 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 searching process and then the buying process, they should be more armed than anyone, you know, with with data and, and experiences. But you know, I I, I think it's. For that industry, it's some of them are still in the madman mindset. Let's call it that. The madman right. the madman mindset where it's like product, 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 and no experience at all. Yeah. The way I look at it is like it's a maturity curve, right? You have the brands that are not doing anything experiential because they think that nothing ever is going to change and they're going to be disrupted and probably go out of business in the next five years. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh then you have the brands that are exploring this and starting to create some experiences and being like, wow, this feels like it works. And then you have the brands that are really doing experiences at scale. Then you have the brands that define themselves as an experiential business, wow. right? That happens to maybe sell product on the side. Mm -hmm. And then at, at the top, you have the brands that do all of this, but actually have the data to understand the ROI, understand what's working and scale uh, smartly, right? And Frankly, those are the brands that use <laughs> that use Eddie Road, uh, but uh, you know, and and I, I feel like part of part of our job is to actually help brands move along this experiential maturity curve, right? Yeah. Um, and and brands are pretty good about identifying where they're at. You know, we'll we'll talk to brands and they're like, "Look, we're down here. We're like starting to experiment with experiences. We know it's important. We just don't really know how to do that." And like. It feels really hard to scale, but like we know it's important, and that's great. That's that's taking the first step, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's important also for us to be able to enable these businesses to say, look, it is hard, right? Digital, you know, in real life is certainly harder and sometimes more expensive to scale than digital, uh, but it is just far more effective at building a global company. Whenever they the brands do come to you, are they are they ready? Uh, or do you find some that say, you know, I'm, we're not going to try that. We're not going to do this. You know, um, how do you and how do you deal with that kind of brand? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, again, it depends where they are in that maturity curve. Right. Mm -hmm. You have like the people who I mean, number one, it's very hard to convince a brand that they should 
build out and scale experiences. So generally when brands come to us, they're already, they already believe that experiential is important and it's an, it's going to become, if it's not already a core part of their business. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but somebody in the organization, often the CEO, sometimes the CMO, uh, is, are like, look, we're spending a lot of money on experiences. We know it's important, but like, we're not going to make these decisions without data. Right. Right. And, you know, th- there are the crazy companies like Lululemon that are like, we don't have data. This is, we're just going to throw these experiences out into the world. And like, we see a lot of people smiling. People seem like they like it. People post about it on Instagram sometimes. Like, that's crazy. It's a publicly traded company spending $300 million a year on experiences. I'm that telling has, you. That's just nuts. But generally, when brands come to us, they're, already bought into the power of experiences and they realize that having data to optimize these experiences and scale them is mm-hmm. really the holy grail. Now you, you mentioned the maturity curve and I like that. So is it, is it when they're coming to you, are they at the, are they doing well or is it when they're declining that when they say we need to make a change? Uh, generally when they're doing well. Um, again, like, the most successful companies in the world are all turning into experiential businesses, right? You look at retail. If I told you um, to invest your 401k in a basket of retail stocks, you'd tell me to, you know, get absolutely get lost. Like, <laughs> retail's not where you want to be investing your 401k. Right. But if I said, hey, why don't you invest your 401k in a basket of experiential retail stocks? Well, now we're ta- now this is a different story. And right. ignoring this latest market downturn, these are companies like Nike, Lululemon, Michaels, uh, um, Home Depot, Costco. These are like the most experiential retail brands, and their stocks are doing amazingly. Right? These are incredible. These are incredible, incredible companies um, that are way outperforming the normal basket of retail stocks. Right. So generally, these are brands that are doing very well. Uh, in term in, in a world of intense competition uh that realized that the missing piece is being able to scale that, that experiential uh deepen these relationships so if home depot can keep you you know doing taking diy classes and workshops in there you're Great probably point. you're probably not going to walk across, across the street to lowe's to buy your paint you're also one thing that we also didn't mention too is how much that experiential uh relationship can actually build trust Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, think of that, you know, it's funny you said the Home Depot because I, I remember I've always been the Lowe's person because like in my old neighborhood, it was right there. It was really convenient. And and they seem to be a little more female friendly where we my thoughts were the contractors went to Home Depot. The residential people stayed at, you know, Lowe's. Yeah. Uh, you, you go into uh, a Home Depot and they have like this father and son doing DIY stuff. Mm-hmm. And now you, what has happened? You've actually made an impression on that young son who's with his dad that Home Depot is the place for him. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. And and this is why brands like Home Depot and uh, and Lowe's are scaling these experiences, um, both for the pros. Right. And so like you. You know, you have this thought of Home Depot being more for the pros than the average person, mm-hmm. and this is a this is a, this is like a serious perception problem that they're having, right? But if I was Home Depot, and I'm not, uh, I would I would really look at scaling experiences for every segment of your of your customer base, right? For those kids who are coming in and want to learn woodworking, for the people who want to stucco their own house, and also for the pros wow. who might not need to, you know, learn these specific skills, but just want to, you know, uh, want a little bit more engagement from a place that they go to frequently. Give me some success stories. Tell me a success story, uh, at least two of them that kind of uh, stand out for customers who who actually utilize your product because you don't get to a series B the way you are right now with just talk. Um, So tell me some success stories uh, that have happened there. Yeah. So uh, Johnny Walker is a great one. Uh, Johnny Walker is uh, one of the biggest uh, whiskey brands in the world owned by Diageo, largest beverage company in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, they just invested a hundred million pounds in a brand new experiential center in Scotland. Wow. Uh, And they really, they worked with us to really like go deep here. So we said, what do you want to do here? And they're like, look, we want Johnny Walker to be the most experiential whiskey brand. And Mm -hmm. we also want it to not be a one size fits all experience. Uh, 
And so we we, we worked with them on this concept where uh, do, do you drink do you drink scotch at all? I don't. You don't. Okay. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, People who do drink scotch uh, often. I know who Johnny Walker is. Trust me, I did. I know. Oh, I, I, I <laughs> hope so. Um, people who do drink scotch have very specific uh, taste palettes, right? Uh-huh. And there are some people who really love the peaty, uh, you know, really like smokiness, and there are uh-huh. some people who really like, you know, the the kind of smoother, sweeter bourbon style from yep. Kentucky, and there are people who really like the, you know, the 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 straight from the barrel, like really strong. It, there are lots of different taste profiles, right? Yeah. And in depending on how the scotch is made and aged, you can actually bring out a lot of different types of, of tastes, right? From or, spicy yeah. to sweet, to peaty, to smoky, to anything. So uh, Johnny Walker, if you go to, uh, to visit them uh, through the kind of booking and registration process, which is powered by us, um, you'll take a taste profile quiz and they want to know, you know, what you like. Do you, do you really wow. like uh, cilantro or do you really like avocado or, you know, like, and, and through this, and they, they do a lot of amazing work behind the scenes. They will tailor the actual experience when you get there to your specific taste profile. Wow. Isn't that pretty tough though, to keep up with all these different people though? Absolutely. Because it's not a one size fits all. Absolutely. It's, really tough and it's super innovative but it's also you know this is something that is more a technology problem than a logistical problem right Mm. and so and and we help them solve that and it's extremely successful and they have millions and millions of people a year who are visiting johnny walker uh and everyone is getting a very unique tailored experience to them and to their taste profile and this is you know it's it's incredible and the other thing is we're not just saying, I'm not just saying, oh, this is a cool experience, Mad Men style. We have, yeah. we have the data to back this up, right? Damn. So we have data from millions and millions of consumers pre every experience, during every experience and post every experience showing how women engage with the brand versus men, showing how old people versus young people engage with the brand. Oh, that's gold. That's gold. Man. They're showing like whether people from Scotland engage with the brand differently than people from Brazil, mm-hmm. uh, showing whether people who had never heard of Johnny Walker before and our first time learning about the brand engage differently than somebody who drinks Johnny Walker every single day. Right. So we're really diving in to say people are very different. Right. And if you and I go together to Johnny Walker, you don't like scotch. Right. And I like certain kinds of scotch, but I'm not really into the PD types. Like mm-hmm. you can have very different experiences there and still walk out with uh, with increased perception of the Johnny Walker brand. So uh, it's a huge success story. And it's not just Mad Men. Wow, this is cool. Right. We actually have the data that's real time across millions and millions of people showing that this experience is working across many different uh, demographics. So, so now, okay, you got the data. Now, great success story. Um, so when, when they get the data, um, how is a brand to utilize that? Do you and, and the rest of your team, do you also at, at any road show them, okay, now that we've got this information, here's how we can utilize this so that we can ensure that we get an ROI from it? Yeah, absolutely. So we work with about 50 breweries. Uh, everyone from Budweiser to Molson Coors to Guinness to Anchor, Sierra Nevada. Um, You know, this is where we started, right? So we work with a lot of really amazing breweries. Mm -hmm. And there are only two reasons that you would, and we have data from millions and millions and millions of people who have taken brewery experiences, brewery tours, beer tastings, beer pairing dinners, all of it. Uh, And there are only two reasons why somebody would not like a brewery tour. Can you guess? Hmm. The smell? No, no, that's not okay. really. Okay. Um, huh. They, they don't drink? No. Really? Yeah. So I would think that would be the number one reason. Like they wouldn't so. be, they wouldn't be interested, right? Think so. so people, you know, people end up in St. Louis, right? Where, where Budweiser 
headquarters is. And, mm-hmm. you know, they'll go to their concierge at their hotel and be like, what's cool to do in St. Louis? And somebody will be like, right. you could go to the Budweiser brewery. And they're like, okay, I don't drink. And they're like, oh, that's cool. Budweiser realized that a lot of people who didn't drink or are not huge Budweiser fans were going. And they started creating experiences tailored to this type of person. Wow. So they have one experience called beerology, which is the science of beer making. And this actually does really well for people who don't drink. Oh yeah, it's it's very interesting. I, when I was uh, when I was years ago, when I started in a restaurant, um, we had a brewery, a microbrewery on the inside, and the entire process was fascinating. Absolutely, it made it made you want to try it. Absolutely, right. And so again, this is just an example of looking at people as unique individuals rather than kind of one size fits all. Let, let's just push everyone through the brewery tour. Yeah. Um, so again, we're back to this. Two reasons why somebody would not like a brewery tour. Hmm. They think it wouldn't be interesting. No. So number one, it's the guide, right? You have somebody oh. who's just like really annoying, not funny, like discriminatory. <laughs> like you didn't, Wow. Then that's going to completely. I would not crazy. have thought of that. I would not have thought of that. It would be the guide. That People would be are super important across all these experiences, whether it's, you know, the wow. person you're playing basketball uh, against in a Nike experience or uh, Michael's art art class, the art teacher, or you know a beer a beer uh, a brewery tour guide. The person is becomes an ambassador of the brand, so that's really important. The second reason wow. is is group size. So if you go and there are two people in the group, it's like kind of boring, not that exciting. If there are forty people in the group, it's you'd have no personal time. It's also really annoying. So I would out, never have thought that the awful group size is around fourteen people. Right. And you go below 10 or above 20 and you actually see engagement drop. Right. And so you asked me how brands are using this data. Brands are using this data to do things like create beerology experiences for people who don't drink. Wow. uh, Limit group sizes to under 20 because it actually increases engagement. Uh, People also don't like free experiences. Right. So if you charge five dollars for a brewery experience, you're going to have much higher engagement than if the exact same thing is free because people don't like free. So charge $5 rather than have it free, right? Actually, you can see with our data, you can see which people or which guides or which teachers are actually outperforming and creating this kind of brand love uh, as opposed to which ones are actually turning people off to the brand, right? So brands should focus on, you know, really nurturing their people uh, and identifying who are their top performers and getting rid of the ones who actually destroy brand value. That's incredible uh, because truthfully, I would I would have never thought that you know, and 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 this is someone who markets for a living. I, I never would have thought that it had nothing to do with their product at all. Absolutely nothing to do with the product. It was all about people. It was about the the guide and the group size. Absolutely, that's that's interesting. And what what we're seeing is that. The brands that are far along on their maturity curve, especially the ones that have been working with us for a while, start to look at this with the same kind of rigor that we would look at advertising on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I want to target, you know, women in their 20s in Ohio, I'm going to create very different experiences than if I want to target, you know, uh, men in their 60s in Southern California. Yeah. Right. And if I have, you know, a bunch of 20 year old women, 21 year old women, because they have to be drinking age coming to Budweiser and I have a bunch of 80 year old men coming to Budweiser, like I might want to create different experiences that resonate with each of them separately. Yeah. And this was always something we did online. Right. We say, hey, we're going to have a Facebook ad and we're going to target a specific demographic in a specific location. But turns out we can do exactly the same thing with experiences. You you have a number of different products under your uh, under Any Road. You have Any Road Atlas. You have Any Road Experience Manager and Any Road Live, powering live events and and brand activations. Tell tell me about that one because it seems like we're in this live and online day and age. I mean, tell me about that if you don't mind, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. So uh, live is really our uh, product for engagement and first party data mm-hmm. uh, across activations and uh, non-ticketed, non-gated experiences, right? Okay. So uh, you want to take an art class, you want to go to the batting cages at Dick's Sporting Goods, you want to do a North Face climbing class, you want to go to the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, 
you're registering ahead. Got it. Right. You're buying a ticket. Sometimes it's free. Sometimes it's paid. But either way, you're opting into this relationship with the brand in exchange for experience using the AnyRoad platform. And we actually and we capture data all opt in there. But what about when you go to Coachella or your favorite music festival mm. and you have brands populating these music festivals all over the place? Right. Um, turns out brands are there because they want to create unique, meaningful connections with their consumers. Yeah. But it's not the way that you're going to buy a ticket for. Right. So any road live is a platform to deepen that engagement. Right. We worked with Procter and Gamble uh, at the Afropunk festival recently, um, and they were going deep with a lot of their brands to, you know, to, to reach folks there. And they wanted to know what the ROI was. They want to know who they were targeting. They wanted to know, like, whether people perceive this as a positive thing and, and had better brand perception of Procter and Gamble because they're at this amazing festival that they that they're at, um, and so that Any Road Live is really to serve that need. And as we see music festivals, wow. concerts, activations, pop ups, we see these things just going crazy. Uh, brands come back to us and say, "We're we're investing heavily on this. We're increasing our budgets by thirty percent a year in some cases, and we have." no idea whether it's working that though that's a success story in itself right there man uh, ha have you ever realized like uh there are some uh there's different demographics that people thought that they knew and once they partner with you it's like you truly didn't really know the audience i know we said that earlier that some brands don't know their audience um and i i remember um uh years ago when i was at a, a this was a franchise automotive dealer. And he said, this particular audience of people don't buy new cars. They buy right. used cars, but it was all his gut feeling. He didn't have any um, data to really back that up, you know? Yeah. So has there been a case where you guys have actually really helped revive a brand by saying, this is what you need to start doing, you know? Yeah. The biggest question a lot of brands need to answer uh, and we will, and we help them do this, but a lot of brands are misinformed is whether they are trying to build loyalty and deep engagement with their existing customer base or mm -hmm. trying to bring new people into this. Right. And we had this problem at Red Bull, right? These 50,000 people would come to our Red Bull event. Like we had no idea. Are these people brand new who just thought this would be a fun thing to do right. with families? Or are these people who drink Red Bull already and are, are coming here because they really love this. And we didn't really know. Um, and we see this, you know, in places like Kentucky, where we work with the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a million people a year who visit the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, right? Wow. And people go to Wild Turkey and Jim Beam and uh, Luxro and all these incredible uh, bourbon distilleries. And you have a very interesting delineation between the people who are, you know, go once in their life. And this is like, oh, my God, I'm paying homage to these incredible whiskey brands that I really love yeah. versus the people who... Uh, who maybe live in town and they're like, Oh, I come here every time I, every time I have friends visiting. And that's like a, a popular thing to do. Well, what, what are some of the, what are some of the important lessons you got along the way in your career? I mean, I'm talking about from when you first started in college, Jonathan, until now, I mean, what are some, what are some important lessons, man? Uh, I think the biggest one is just how much of a roller coaster entrepreneurship is and that <laughs> um, you can't have the good without the bad. Yeah, man. Uh, it's, it's, it's taken me a while. You know, I, I used to get really stressed by the, the difficult times. And now I look at it as a, a, a necessary part of the, the journey um, and, you know, to embrace it and learn from it uh, just as much as the good times. Uh, but also, you know, it goes into a bigger theme of just managing my own psychology, I think. Uh, Great point. Such a great point. I have an article coming out tomorrow that's published in entrepreneur.com oh, nice. uh, where, where, where it says entrepreneurship is a lonely place because it, 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 it truly is. It, it, it truly is. And I, that's, I think that's a, that's a great answer right there. What, what, what would you, if you can go back in time, man, and to yourself 10, 15 years ago, what would you say? Just keep going. Damn. Just keep going. Just keep going, man. Jonathan, man, I, I, uh, I hope you and I, we stay connected, Absolutely. Through this, man. I'm going to continue following you, man. And I'm so happy with everything that you've done. 
Um, so um, I, I am so happy. And I, I want to wrap this up, but you, you and I, we brought something up earlier. Uh, and, and now, you know, since COVID, we talked about COVID and what its effects have been on people uh, and also remote teams. But, you know, you also mentioned, you said you're one that loves the interaction and your team is still cohesive and you guys are together. I mean, how do you continue to have that culture and that magic in, in, in such this remote world? How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to bring people together. I, I think that the most creative uh, strategic work and thinking has to be has to be done in person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I think that the the world that we've that we've kind of settled into at any road is one where we have incredible physical spaces for people to congregate and do that creative interaction strategic work. But people don't have to come in every day. And when you're at home, that's the time for like focused focused work where you don't have yeah. kinds of distractions. But we also do things like we're taking the entire company to Portugal. Uh, awesome. Because we have folks all over the world um, and it's really important for us to spend time together, right? It's not that expensive, uh, but it's a really good use of our time um, and, and money to be able to get to know each other better, to create that empathy, to actually understand who we're working with. So it's not just like anonymous names on a Slack yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it, it's extremely important for us to have that that real life component. Um, and uh, I, I think that the most game changing industry defining companies in the next 20 years are all maybe besides crypto are all going to have uh, a really uh, intentional in person uh, aspect. You made a prediction earlier. You said a lot of retail companies are going to are going to shut down. Any other predictions you want to put out here? And then we can use this as a time capsule and come back and say, Jonathan said this. You know. Uh, yeah, I, I think that a lot of retailers are going to shut down. Um, I also think that digital marketing. We've already. Whereas this is kind of a uh, obvious prediction to a lot of marketers, but uh, we're seeing Facebook and Instagram uh, and Twitter and all these in Snapchat. We're seeing the ad platforms uh, have way worse uh, results, uh, way worse ROI, way more expensive. So I think that uh, every generation, there's a a category defining uh, marketing platform. And the last one was digital. The last one was Facebook, right? Like Facebook and Google took all you know, the huge broadcast television's money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and again, you, you, we went from print to television to, you know, digital and social. And I believe that the, the next generation is all experiential. Wow. Uh, and I think the only thing that experiential is missing is the data layer. And that's why we're uh, hard at work building. It. Yeah. I think between the experience and also the digital, you just can't lose. You just can't lose, man. Uh, I, I'm 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 honored to be able to have you on the show today, man. Uh, you're, you're a great you're a great great guest, man, and I'm proud of what you've done for you and your company. Um, you know, Jonathan, I want you to go ahead and shout yourself out. I want you to give people those handles so they can follow you, see what you're doing, where you're speaking. I want them to go on and for those business owners out there that's brands. I want them to actually go to your website uh, and and find out as much as they can about any road it's any road.com just spelled like, just like how it is. Uh, but go ahead and shout it out, Jonathan. Yeah, we got any road.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, where is Yaffe? Uh, Yaffe <laughs> is Y A F F E. Uh, I'm speaking, uh, this week at marketing AI conference, um, in Cleveland next week at traction in Vancouver, uh, web summit in Lisbon, uh, in, in a month or two, mm-hmm. uh, all over the place. Uh, I'm also Jonathan at any road.com. Uh, and, uh, yeah, dude, blow up my inbox. Re- really good stuff. And, uh, you know, maybe we should do a part two in like probably three, four months to talk about how much AI is actually, uh, you know, taking over. I've seen something now, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, there's an AI platform where you just type in, you type in words and it actually makes the images. I think Dolly, uh, yeah, Dolly, you know, yeah. um, it's, you know, things like Dolly or things like any word, you know, or Jasper, those things out there. 
uh, Jarvis, I mean, uh, Jasper, Jarvis, whatever they, they rebranded as now. But those things, just how AI is taking over and how it's even helping with SEO now. So we'll, we'll, we'll possibly do that again, man, and, uh, and, and have another conversation. But I want to definitely thank our listeners for listening to the ad cast. If you think uh, this episode has been great, man, just give us a thumbs up, a great rating, and actually forward this on to your friends, man. So we can have more awesome guests like Jonathan Yaffe here from Any Road onto our podcast. I want to thank you guys for giving us your most valuable asset, which is your time. It's the one thing if you had a billion dollars, you couldn't buy another second. This is the AdCast. Jonathan, you're great, man. Thanks so much. This was awesome. Hey, guys, I'm back. I hope that you enjoyed that episode of the AdCast. If you didn't, go online, give me a review, and tell me how you want us to make it better for you. And if you did, give us a five-star rating anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcast. But I want to thank you for your most valuable asset. That's your time, and thank you for listening. Enjoy the AdCast, and stay tuned for another hot episode coming up soon.